שלום, you're listening to On Israel, the Almonitor podcast brought to you from Tel Aviv, I'm Ben Kaspit. Israeli forces along the border with Lebanon have been in a state of top alert for the past three months. The heightened alert over such a long time is unusual, to say the least. Meanwhile, Israel is waging a war of nerves against Hezbollah and its leader, Hassan Nasrallah. It all began on July 20th with an airstrike on the Damascus International Airport attributed to the Israeli Air Force. Among the casualties was a Hezbollah operative and Nasrallah swore that the organization would avenge his death by taking the life of an Israeli soldier. Since then, each side has been flexing its muscles and no one knows how long this will last. The tensions have survived the heavy tragedy of the explosion that destroyed the Beirut port in August, as well as several re- retaliations attempted by Hezbollah, which Israeli troops foiled. Our guest today is a decorated general who holds a reserve commission as deputy chief of the IDF's Northern Command. General Itzhak Jerry Gershon, one of the most experienced and valued among Israel's current generation of generals, was among a handful of senior officers who openly expressed support for the annexation plan that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu announced in January. The annexation idea generated great hopes on the Israeli political right until it was foiled by the so-called Abraham agreements between Israel, the United Arab Emirates, and the Bahrain under the auspices of President Donald Trump. We will ask General Gershon about this deal, about sovereignty in return for peace, about the tensions along the northern border, about the fact that the IDF, the strongest uh, military force in the Middle East, has essentially been cowering for months for, for fear of Hezbollah, and also about the handling of the coronavirus crisis. Among his many jobs, General Gershon also served as head of the Home Front Command, which is now helping deal with the epidemic that is threatening the collapse of Israel's economy. We will be back with General Gershon after a brief commercial break. If you're listening to this podcast, you obviously care about the Middle East. And if you do, you should probably be reading El Monitor. El Monitor is a global newsroom headquartered in Washington, D.C., with a network of over 160 contributors around the world. El Monitor offers first-class reporting and analysis from a range of perspectives and an approach that represents the highest journalistic standards, as well as an award-winning commitment to press freedom and independence. If you haven't done so already, visit us at elmonitor.com, check out our articles, and sign up for our free newsletters. There's a lot to choose from, including the Week in Review, an essay that offers unusual insights and forecasts into the region based upon El Monitor's outstanding reporting. And if you haven't done so, please subscribe to our El Monitor podcast on your favorite podcast platform, On Israel with Ben Caspit and On the Middle East with me, Andrew Parasoliti. Shalom, General Itzhak, Jerry Gershon, and thank you for joining the Almonitor podcast on Israel. Shalom, Jerry. Hi, Ben. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, Jerry, let's start uh, of all things with the annexation. You were one of the few generals 
who expressed open support for the plan to impose Israeli sovereignty over Israeli settlements in Judea and Samaria. Most of your colleagues in the defense establishment, past and present, thought the cost of the plan would be far higher than it was worth. Eventually, the plan was put aside and was replaced by agreements with the Gulf states. Today, looking back, what do you think of this trade-off? Are you sorry? Oh, no. Uh, this uh, peace agreement have a huge potential for a geostrategic change. They have the potential to affect the security, stability, and, and prosperity of the region. Uh, so in that regard, they are very, very important for the state of Israel. However, the decision about the future of the area between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea has strategic implications, especially um, Israel's capability to defend itself uh, on her own. In, in, in October, uh, just as a reminder, uh, in October 1995, immediately after the Oslo Accords, our Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin was the one who said in the Knesset our, that, that the Jordan Valley is non-negotiable. So the, the, these generals that opposed the idea talked at the same time how fragile is, the Middle East is. Uh, we, we remember that our best allies in the region were Iran and Turkey. In other words, agreements as important as they are um, based on common interests while applying sovereignty is to secure the future of the state of Israel for the next 100 years or, or more. More than that, um, applying sovereignty is to ensure that future generations do not need to deal with a hostile entity in uh, uh, Judea and Samaria like what we have in Gaza today. It is important to understand that we mean applying sovereignty over territory without annexing even a single Palestinian. You mean, uh, I guess, that uh, we are applying sovereignty only on the Jewish settlements without uh, taking responsibility to the millions of Palestinians that are living there. But I want to, I want to follow up uh, on this, uh, on, of the, on the important things that you just said in two questions. First, you remember that after Menachem Begging uh, applied sovereignty over the Golan Heights, at least two prime ministers, uh, Itzhak Rabin and Benjamin Netanyahu, negotiated with, uh, with uh, Hafez al-Assad and Bashar al-Assad uh, peace uh, with, uh, with giving back the Golan Heights. So it's not, it's not guaranteeing anything. And the second question, uh, General Gershon, is in principle, why would, do we need to annex the Jordan Valley when in fact, you know, the IDF is deployed there and no one in Israel even considers evacuating it. Why endanger the fragile peace with Jordan which is such as an important asset for Israel's national security. So, so uh, you know, uh, changes in the Middle East are um, so so fast. Um, but let's let's start with the uh, the the second part of your question. Yes. I absolutely agree. There is no doubt that the peace with Jordan is very important for for Israel as well as for Jordan. The question is not 
the status quo, but when and how we can put an end to uh, the ongoing Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict. It's not that we woke up one morning and decided to put sovereignty on the table. It, it was part of the current US administration uh, deal uh, for the Middle East. Uh, this administration, we have to be honest, uh, has introduced the first time an innovative plan that addresses both our national interests as well as, as facts uh, on the ground, uh, like that we have 2 million or more Palestinians living in Judea and Samaria, and does not recycle plans that have so far uh, failed. The, the, the plan was to, uh, to start with the Palestinians and then to continue with the Gulf states. Since the Palestinians refused to come to the table, surprise, uh, the president's team and the prime minister changed the course and thank God it worked. So in the end of the day, we'll, we, I can promise you, we'll have sovereignty over strategic areas, including most of the settlements and we'll have peace with the Arab and Muslim world. The, the only question is, uh, or maybe uh, it is right to say, hopefully the Palestinians will join this uh, peace train. And I think I, I agree with you on this point because till now uh, the, the Palestinians uh, refused to almost all the peace uh, proposals, very generous proposals they got, believing that time is working uh, 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 towards them. And now I think uh, with the Trump administration's uh, deal of the century and now the Gulf agreements, I think that they, they start to realize the time is not working for them, but maybe against them, and they cannot go on missing every opportunity on the way. But I want to, to switch General Gershon to one of your best expertise as a deputy command of, uh, of, the, of the Northern Command in Israel, deputy commander, and let's talk about Hezbollah. For a minute there, there we thought that the Beirut explosion would weaken Nasrallah and send him back to his bunker, but uh, that did not happen. And the IDF has been on very high alert for three months because Nasrallah keeps threatening to kill an Israeli soldier. Isn't it strange that the strongest military in the Middle East goes on the defensive because of threats by the leader of a terrorist organization? Wow, it, it, it is a very uh, uh, interesting uh, question. Uh, I would say, first of all, the, the IDF deals with a large number of arenas uh, simultaneously in Gaza, Judea and Samaria, Syria, uh, places where, where silence is better for, for all. Therefore, I would not say that the IDF is on a high alert. It is true um, that uh, the Northern Command protects the border with Lebanon in a way that matches the level of the, of the threat. This is exactly what was expected from our troops um, to, to throat the threat, charge a price without degenerating the, the region into war. Uh, also, uh, also prepared for the possibility of misjudgment by the Hezbollah ladder, leader uh, as happened in uh, summer uh, 2006. 
after the, the Second Lebanon War, we got a, a very strong deterrence with Hezbollah and Nasrallah was uh, down in his bunker. But in the last year or two, after he was, uh, he was winning the, the war in Syria, uh, now it seems that, uh, that he is uh, looking for an uh, engagement with us. And I ask you, the question is how, what's the level of the, are we ready? How, is the Northern Command ready for a possible uh, Hezbollah effort to take over maybe a piece of land in uh, Northern Israel? And especially, how, do we have an answer to the two, 200,000 uh, missiles and rockets that Nasrallah keeps in his, uh, in his uh, bunkers in, uh, in Lebanon? So let, let's, let's uh, um, divide it into uh, two parts. First of all, um, continue to uh, the last question, because there is a, a relation between the two. It is important to know that the FIDF's freedom of action in, in the northern arena has not been violated and all its action derive from the strategic purpose that we must not allow Iran to build another front against Israel in Syria and do everything possible to prevent the entry of sophisticated, accurate weapons in, into the region. Most importantly, the whole world is currently busy with COVID-19. Lebanon on the verge of economic collapse. If Hezbollah drags the region into uh, war, maybe it will get some respect from the Iranians, but uh, at the same time, Nasrallah will be officially signed for Lebanon's uh, uh, destruction. Uh, now, um, as for uh, the, the IDF and the Northern Command, first priority is to be ready for that challenge that you mentioned. I'll be honest with you. Uh, it's not going to be a picnic. It's going to be a nasty war. Uh, as you know, I was there in the, the Second Lebanon War, and uh, we, we used to... Uh, uh, to uh, deal with uh, 200 rockets a day. Now we are talking about 1,500, even 2,000 rockets a day. But not like the Second Lebanon War. Israel understand that Lebanon as a state should be part of the game. We don't have anything against the Lebanese, but they host a very radical terror organization that avoids them from developing their country Instead of spending money to make Lebanon again as Switzerland of the Middle East, they spend a lot of money on missiles and rockets, and they hide them among and within the within civilians. Actually, what you so, just said. So, so today, I would say that in in our eyes, Lebanon is Hezbollah, and Hezbollah is Lebanon. And I, I understood it totally because I, I remember the war and I've covered it and you were there as you were in the second intifada, actually you were everywhere. But what you just said, the headline that you gave me is that unlike the Eud Olmert decision in 2006, Prime Minister Olmert, not to hit Lebanese infrastructure and to not, not to see Lebanon as responsible to the war, but Hezbollah, right now, if war erupts, it's Lebanon will suffer 
and they, there will be no distinction between Lebanon and Hezbollah. This is what the, you actually said, if I understood it right. Uh, absolutely. Okay, so let's move on to uh, how do you think these uh, agreements that we just uh, spoke about, the agreements between Israel and the Gulf states, uh, the warming ties with the Saudis and the talk about additional agreements is affecting the whole Shiite axis that uh, stretches from Tehran to Beirut. Do you think they, they just, they, they're not, they, now they're just sitting and thinking what to do with this? These agreements stand against the grand strategy of, of Iran. Make no mistake, the Iranians are very smart and they have patience, uh, not like us. They, they, they are working patiently to implement the strategy to spread their ideology and to gain control on this part of the world. Uh, peace and normalization with Israel block them from achieving their goals. It is almost as if you build a defense shield against their ambitions. Uh, more importantly is that the people in these states, uh, the, the, the Gulf states, uh, not like uh, in, in Egypt and Jordan, uh, which we really appreciate and we see the peace with Egypt and Jordan as a strategic asset, understand that Israel in many ways isn't anymore the problem of the, of the region, but uh, the, the solution. Yes, this is a very important uh, strategic development and I agree with you again. And um, let's talk about November 3rd, the, the election in the United States. Uh, is a type of watershed for the different rivals in the region. I'm talking especially about Tehran, Damascus, Moscow, Beirut, and Jerusalem. Do you think they, they will sit there at the, the November 3rd night and, you know, be very in, in a very high level of tension to see who is going to win the, the, the American election? Let me make it clear, because I'm not a politician, so I can speak free. Uh, free, like uh, with no limited, with no obli any uh, commitment to, to anyone. Uh, I'm not an official representative of the state of Israel. Let me tell you that after the peace agreements, the US election, after the peace agreements with uh, the United Emirates and uh, Bahrain, uh, the US election for the Iranians is almost the difference between life and death. The Iranians are waiting uh, for Biden the, that will seek to renew. This is how they think. Uh, the so-called JCPOA, as you know. Yes. In Israeli eyes, it is completely disaster, which promises the Iranians a large arsenal of nuclear weapons in 10 years and regional hegemony by then. While Trump wants an agreement in which they will give up totally their nuclear program. So there is a big difference. Uh, both uh, candidates wants to achieve uh, any kind of deal uh, with the Iranian, but there is a huge difference between the two. Okay, I want to ask you a different question. I want to go, I want to go back to the IDF. You, uh, you were a general in the IDF and spent more than 30 years uh, working on Israel's national security. There is no secret that the IDF is a leading force in technology, in cyber, 
in uh, air force, drones, attacking drones, intelligence. Sometimes it looks like the last chapter of uh, Star Wars, but there is a lot of criticism from ex-generals like uh, General Itzhak Brick that we neglect on the same time, we neglect the ground forces, what we call boots on the ground. I'm talking about infantry, about armored forces, about the people, the soldiers that will, be, will have to go and maneuver in uh, enemies, uh, behind enemy's line in order to win the next war. Do you think this, this criticism is uh, real and justifies? Justified, or do you count on the on the leadership of the IDF that keeps the you know the the the, uh, the level of the soldiers in in a good shape? So um, let let me let me put it uh, um, that way. First, the, there is no contradiction between the between the two. The investment in air intelligence uh, uh, and cyber, um, no doubt, that strengthen the uh, ground forces. It is no longer uh, land maneuver, but a multi-dimensional maneuver. Take, for example, the aerial dimension of fighting in urban areas. And I was there in Lebanon, in Judea, and Samaria. This combination. Uh, will allow the battalion commander to expose the enemy and destroy him faster and more efficiently. Second, the idea behind multi-dimensional maneuver is primarily intended to strengthen the, I would say, the operational edge on, on the ground to enable both accurate intelligence and real-time firepower for the platoon company or battalion commander. Having said that, it must be clear that new concept doesn't come instead of uh, training uh, full and ready warehouses, uh, and of course, enough ground forces uh, to, meet, uh, to meet the current uh, challenges. Um, I, 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 I would add to that, I think it's fair to to, uh, fair to say that um, that uh, I, I, I commend um, the uh, the chief of staff, Lieutenant General Aviv Kochavi, um, because it is the first time after 20 years that um, that we base the structure of the, the of the IDF based on on concept and not based on uh, crisis events and so on. In other words, I would say that uh, what the chief of staff is doing is to be prepared for war tomorrow morning, but at the same time to change the army to be ready for the next war and, what, and not for the last war. Understood. And, and I, I would add to that, uh, you know, uh, many, many people are, are, are like, those who critic the uh, uh, this uh, digital uh, uh, era that we are living in, uh, I, I would ask you uh, if you prefer or be willing to use today uh, Nokia uh, instead of uh, smart of, of smartphone. 
Yes, you remind me the time that they let me in a, a, a brand new Merkava tank, and I knew the old ones, the first ones, and I was in totally shocked. Uh, I want to ask you one question about the coronavirus, uh, because your previous, one of your previous jobs in the army was head of the home front command. And do you think that the command and the military should be in charge of handling the epidemic? After all, they have sophisticated emergency systems for just such a crisis. Was it a mistake not to do it from the very beginning? So let's, let's put it uh, uh, that way. Uh, first of all, the, the IDF um, from the very beginning uh, is doing a lot of things uh, to help the, the, the country to overcome the challenge. Uh, but, but let's take it to, to another level. Uh, we need to understand and recognize the fact that the state of Israel is dealing with system of systems. Uh, the health system, the economic system, uh, the social and the security system. There will, there will always be tension between the various systems. This tension must be regulated by the cabinet and the prime minister. Uh, they, they must determine a strategy, determine a, the policy, and let the executive bodies work. Therefore, to the question whether the army and especially the chief of staff should have conducted the event, the answer is negative. The army is in charge of the security system, which is working well. Uh, the chief of staff should not run the country and make decision, decisions uh, whether there is a quarantine or not, uh, and certainly not economic decisions. But if you ask whether the National Emergency Authority should have been activated and the home front, the full home front command, as well as local authorities from the very beginning, the answer is absolutely yes. And in that regard, this is a big failure. Okay, finally, General Gershon, I want to ask you a very uh, small personal question. You were for years the IDF's representative of the Friends of the IDF organization in the United States. You got to know the warm American Jewish and expat Israeli community up close. What do you uh, like to tell your friends back in the United States? Do you miss them? So I, I, I want to tell you a story. Uh, <laughs> When, when, I got the, uh, when I got the job, uh, actually, I didn't want to go there. Uh, when I offered the job, I said, it's not for me. I don't like to schnorrer. Uh, actually, it's not a schnorrer. Uh, but, but my wife, you know, they are always right. Uh, she said, what are you nuts? Let's take it. After 32 years, uh, most of them on the front line, Let's go to the United States, rest three years, and uh, and uh, we'll we'll go we'll come back to uh, to to Israel. So uh, so I did, and uh, I want to tell you a story about about uh, my first days in the in the Friends of the IDF. I met uh, one of the senior employees, amazing woman. Um, she was like fourteen years something like that at the. In the, in the organization. So at the beginning of the conversation, I told her, Barbara, I like to, I like to study. 
um, I'm very curious, I like to study, and I like criticism. If you feel my English is not good enough, please don't hesitate to correct me. She was very surprised. Uh, I said, it is, it is the only way I'll improve myself. And then I asked her the first question in English. Barbara, how long have you been serving in the organization? And I, I marked the serving and she was surprised. Her answer was with a smile, hey, here is your first mistake. Uh, here is your first mistake. Like uh, it's not serving, it is working. Your grammar is perfect, but it's not serving, it is working. Well, I said to Barbara, I'm sorry. I do not accept this time your correction. I came here to serve the IDF soldiers and those who choose to support them. I don't miss the, the job over there, but I really miss the people that appreciate the fact that thanks God, we have today the, the IDF and the state of Israel. It's a great story. And I think the English speakers from uh, between our listeners, I, I'm not sure they know. When we say in Israel, when you go to the army, you serve in the army, army service. And this is in Hebrew, actually to be a soldier and uh, defend your country, your homeland. General uh, Gershon, thank you very much for this interesting conversation. We'll be back with some uh, final comments after this brief commercial break. If you're listening to this podcast, you obviously care about the Middle East. And if you do, you should probably be reading El Monitor. El Monitor is a global newsroom headquartered in Washington, D.C., with a network of over 160 contributors around the world. El Monitor offers first-class reporting and analysis from a range of perspectives and an approach that represents the highest journalistic standards, as well as an award-winning commitment to press freedom and independence. If you haven't done so already, visit us at elmonitor.com, check out our articles, and sign up for our free newsletters. There's a lot to choose from, including the Week in Review, an essay that offers unusual insights and forecasts into the region based upon El Monitor's outstanding reporting. And if you haven't done so, please subscribe to our El Monitor podcast on your favorite podcast platform, on Israel with Ben Caspit and on the Middle East with me, Andrew Parasoliti. Thank you for staying with us. When listening to General Gershon, we have to acknowledge that he is fully aware of the fact that whatever he's just told us will be on Hassan Nasrallah's table within a few minutes. So this was actually a formal Israeli warning that defines the next war between Israel and Hezbollah as nasty and claims aloud that the next time the Israeli government and the IDF will see the state of Lebanon is the sole responsible to the rockets Hezbollah is going to fire at Israel. Under these circumstances, it is obvious that the order to the IDF will be to destroy and hit Lebanese infrastructure and strategic targets. What is left to us is to hope that this war will not happen in our lifetime. 
I hope you enjoyed this uh, conversation. We hope to see you next Monday here in On Israel at Al Monitor. I'm Ben Kaspi from Tel Aviv. Take care.